0: Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode four off the map. On today's episode, we're going to talk about one particular barrier to humans, and how the narrative we've been told all these centuries is most likely not quite accurate. Today, we're going to talk about the Atlantic Ocean, how it served as a barrier to human migration, and how, during the reign of King Ethelred of England around the turn of the first millennium CE, other groups of Scandinavians chose to ignore what the Danish Vikings were doing, and pushed westward, to precede the official discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus by roughly 500 years. And we'll also seek out other stories of early contact with America as well. I hope you enjoy the show. For much of human history... Really, the better part of a hundred thousand years or so. Nature has sought to divide us. Mountains, deserts, rivers, valleys, canyons, cliffs, ice, ice fields, snow-capped mountain peaks, blizzards, typhoons and hurricanes, frigid temperatures, deadly heat, sandstorms, volcanoes. Yet we humans have proved time and time again that we're a pretty hardy bunch. See, we live in an age today in which we soar to the upper atmosphere, all for a two-day business conference. We send our best and brightest and bravest to live for months outside of that nice cozy blanket of breathable air in a series of metal tubes full of recycled air and water. And we've even left a boot print on the surface of our nearest cosmic neighbor. Even today, however, there is one obstacle we're still fighting against. It's an obstacle that plagued our ancestors, too. In fact, if given the time, humans can overcome pretty much any obstacle that's placed in front of them. Every ancient group of people, see, they excelled at a few methods of championing nature whether they were the first peoples of the Australian continent, the Inuit of the Arctic Circle, the roaming Bedouins of the Sahara Desert, the Mongolian horsemen of the steppes, the isolated Japanese on a fairly resource-poor string of islands, and the Polynesian seafarers who peopled the most remotest places on the planet. Again, a pretty hardy bunch. But see, there's a key phrase to point out there. If given the time, humans, thanks for the opposable thumb and the discovery of fire and all that, became master toolmakers and tool users. We see the earliest kinds of tools even today in chimpanzees as they're getting more and more adept at using a twig to pull ants out of an anthill for some mid- little midday snack. On a much more sophisticated scale, it's along the same lines as those Aborigines in Australia who intentionally set fires to large swaths of forest in order to more efficiently hunt for food. Instead of having no personal possessions because one had to continue to be on the move, Bedouins used the ancient practice of animal husbandry to domesticate camels to do all the heavy lifting. If resources were scarce, one had to be prepared to fight for them, which is why the Mongols of the high plains of Central Asia became adept at horse riding in order to take their enemies by surprise and when the tiny island of your ancestors made their home begins to be uninhabitable, you learn the ways of the ocean and you strike out in search of better places suited for your growing community. Over, under, around, and through every obstacle, humans found a way. But that one, that one still plagues our every move. Distance. Now, to be fair, humans found ways to minimize the impact of that scourge of distance. Instead of walking, we domesticated horses. Instead of swimming, we rode a boat. Instead of rowing, we used the power of the wind. Instead of sailing, we fly. Instead of taking a horse-drawn Conestoga wagon, we drive. Instead of sitting in traffic, we take the subway. Instead of writing a letter, we make a phone call or email or text. See? We humans, again, pretty special. But we still can't seem to shake that distance thing completely. And in the world of 1000, there was a major barrier to the west of Europe and Africa. This barrier was a massive north-to-south field of seawater, as far as you could sail in that direction. It was the resting place of the sun each night. When the sun set, the world would plunge into darkness. Middle-aged Europeans called it Mare Tenebrosum, while Arabs called it Bar al-Zulamat, which both meant Sea of Darkness. Romans simply called it Oceanus, which seemed generic and impersonal, unlike the Mediterranean Sea, which they referred to as Mare Nostrum, or Our Ocean the god they associated with Oceanus was merely the representation of the ocean itself, and, and not like Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, who literally controlled the waters. You know, Oceanus was still considered separate from it. Nun, the outer sea, the ocean sea, we know of this massive barrier as the name, it is, as the name it's derived from. The Greeks prayed to a god who held the world upon his shoulders. From this, Plato, the famous Greek philosopher of the 4th century BCE, told the story of an ancient city out beyond the pillars of Hercules in the far west where that god Atlas bore the weight of the world. This city was said to be highly advanced and circular in nature. This city suffered a terrible fate. It was consumed by the ocean, and would never again see the light of the sun. This city was named after Atlas, and this ocean was named after that mythical city. What they didn't know over a thousand years ago was this ocean, as mind-numbingly vast as it was, was still only the second largest ocean on the planet, covering 41.1 million square miles, or 106.5 million square kilometers. It covered about 20% of the Earth's surface and accounted for nearly one-third of the Earth's total water. And on top of all that, it's the saltiest of all major bodies of water on Earth, which offers a much-needed counterbalance to the less saline Indian Ocean into which it flows. This ocean drives weather patterns. For both all the major four continents that surround it, whether it's pushing warm waters northward and colder waters southward on this this planet-sized conveyor belt, or carrying the continental dust clouds blowing westward from the Sahara Desert across the 3,000 miles to the world's largest rainforest. And as I record this today... We actually are getting some of that dust here in the middle of the United States, the the very same dust that just a month or two ago blew off of the African continent. Of course, this seemingly impenetrable barrier, we call this the Atlantic Ocean. Averaging 3,000 or so miles from east to west, it continues to grow, if you can believe it by way of the mid-Atlantic ridge that spans from the Arctic to the Antarctic. A whopping 10,000 miles of submerged, jagged peaks, zigzagging from end to end right down the middle like a giant jacket zipper. And this ridge continues to push both of its sides apart, ripping itself apart every second as it spews molten rock, creating brand new ocean floor, at a rate of 1 inch per year, or 2.5 centimeters per year. That's about 1,010 inches, or 2,500 centimeters, since that brave elderman of Essex stood poised across from the fleet of menacing Norse raiders. Remember that causeway between Olaf Tryggvason's Vikings and Britnoth's Saxons? Since that battle took place, Europe has been pushed away from North America about one-quarter the distance of that causeway. Distance has always been a problem for us humans, and when it comes to the Atlantic Ocean, distance seems to be taunting our ancestors as well. But again, we humans, we're a hardy bunch. Officially, historians will tell you that the Genoese merchant, Christopher Columbus, sought to limit the total distance to the rich Asian port cities of the Far East, in 1492, under the banner of King Ferdinand Queen Isabella of Spain. We we know all this. And for centuries, that's been the narrative. The idea of shortening the distance between Europe and the exotic riches of the Far East drove these expeditions. And of course, Columbus stumbled his way into history by happening to reach the islands scattered throughout the Caribbean Sea, the first quote-unquote old-worlder to do so, according to history textbooks. Again, that's been the narrative, and it still is the narrative today in primary education circles. However, in recent years and decades, a mounting heap of evidence lay in direct opposition to this. He certainly did happen upon the outskirts of North America, just opening up future generations to penetrate the actual continent in growing numbers over the ensuing centuries. But he, it's safe to, now to say, was not the first old-worlder to do so. He was merely the first one to be recognized and, and widely recorded to do so. Some of the more controversial pieces of evidence of early visitations from Europeans and Africans and Asians are still obviously up for debate, but there are some interesting relics found that if you squint your eyes just enough they're entirely plausible. For instance, we know that the Romans colonized as far west as the Iberian Peninsula in what they called Hispania, or present-day Spain and Portugal. But archaeologists have recently found a Roman settlement inhabited between the 1st century BCE and the 4th century CE on the island of Lanzarote in the Canary Islands well into the Atlantic Ocean, just off the coast of Africa. Also, there, have been floor, there was a floor mosaic found in another Roman city depicting what many claim to be a pineapple. Though skeptics say it's a pine cone, but personally, I don't think it looks anything like a pine cone. This isn't really remarkable until you realize that, that pineapples are native to southern Brazil and weren't introduced to the Old World until 1493 by Columbus. And finally, off the coast of Brazil, shipwrecks have been found under the waves of the Bay of Jars. At first, people concluded that jars found there were of Spanish origin from probably the 15th or 16th centuries. But they've increasingly come under harder scrutiny recently, and some entertain the thought of them as Roman amphorae. But Romans aren't the only possible and ancient visitors to the Americas. Many whispers throughout history echo to us today. For the better part of the past hundred years, the scientific world has overwhelmingly accepted the idea called the Clovis First Theory, which states, unequivocally, that first peoples of the Americas first inhabited North America between 13,000 and 15,000 years ago due to unearthed flint tools found near Clovis, New Mexico, in the United States. However, a growing amount of evidence has been shown to call this hypothesis into question, such as similarities between Clovis flint tools and Solutrean flint tools. See, Solutrians were ancient humans living in France, in the Iberian Peninsula. This idea, called the Solutrean theory, or Solutrean hypothesis, challenges the Clovis first, in that not only were the First Peoples of the Americas not of Asian descent, but also in that it pushes the dates of human habitation in North America back another 2,000 to 3,000 years or so. There's a strange map out there as well. It's said that Marco Polo is said to have copied this map from older Chinese maps. This map survives today, too, and it clearly shows the eastern coast of Asia, Japan, and and the, the many islands to their south. But interestingly, it also shows on the right side of the map a rough outline of the western coast of North America, complete with a string of islands in the north at the top of the map we can unmistakably recognize as Alaska's Aleutian Islands. Marco Polo if you remember, he was a 14th century explorer. And legends abound about ancient travelers heading west. So here's one favorite of mine. It's, a, it's about a prince of Wales all right, named Madoc, or Madog Abowain Gwynedd. This one I find fascinating, actually. So the legend says that Madoc was a peaceful man and chose to devote his life to exploration and, and discovery and adventure. In the year 1170, he returned after a long stint away and told of a very distant land, rich in resources. He sought to increase the fleet on his return trip, and he left in 1171. But see, madoc he never returned. Now, this mythical, faraway land could be nothing more than a fanciful medieval tale, if not for stone structures found at the mouth of the Alabama River in present-day Mobile, Alabama, right there along the Gulf Coast of of the Gulf of Mexico. Cherokee stories tell of a community of fair-skinned foreigners who built these structures only to leave and never return. And according to the British website HistoricUK.com, the stone structures were strikingly similar in design to, let me try to pronounce this right, Dolwidlin Castle in Wales and the nearby native population called the Mandan were seen by 18th century traders as having much lighter skin as neighboring populations of natives. In addition to their appearance, they lived in highly organized communities complete with gridded streets and, and spoke a very recognizable Welsh dialect, though one, you know, understandably evolved over the centuries. It's worth noting that these ancient structures are still there today, unlike the Mandan people who were wiped out due to an unfortunate 1830s smallpox epidemic. And they're dated to several hundred years before Columbus. And the boats they used were nothing like local canoes, but rather were of the design used in Wales. And even the famous 19th century artist who lived among the various native tribes that he painted including the Mandan before they died out, his name was George Catlin, and he publicly attested to him finding the long-lost ancestors of Prince Maddox's expedition. The website explains that people would speak to the Mandan in Welsh, and the Mandan would easily respond. And finally, before George Catlin, Governor Thomas Sevier, or Seaver, of Tennessee... The website said, quote, wrote a report in 1799 in which he mentioned the discovery of six skeletons encased in brass armor bearing the Welsh coat of arms, end quote. Now, assuming all this is true, which at this point there's little reason to doubt it, this alone disproves the idea that Christopher Columbus was the first European to set eyes on America. And there are so many other stories of this nature, some unquestionably debunked and others still up for a little bit of of debate, but I personally believe that enough evidence exists to at least debunk the notion that those in the old world were completely unaware of another land to the west. And I want to point out just one more example. I know I'm taking up a lot of time here when this this is really centering around Viking expeditions. But again, context is key. I want to point out one more example before I tie it back into our old mead-chugging sailor friends. If you can believe it, this example dates as far back as the 500s CE, or right at the beginning of the Middle Ages. This was also known as the Dark Ages, as Christianity was still spreading throughout the remnants of the Western Roman Empire's collapse. A man by the name of Brendan evangelized all over Europe and was renowned for his Christian piety and his adventurousness. He made his way to Ireland after amassing quite a following of believers on the mainland Europe, and set up several monasteries before launching northward and westward for islands, with which to find the isolation thought required for getting as close to God as possible. That was his mission. In fact, side note, for any fans of the Star Wars filmed franchise, in the Last Jedi movie, Luke Skywalker's place of self-imposed galactic exile named Octo, was actually filmed on one of these islands likely discovered by Brendan himself. It's called Skellig Michael, just off the Irish coast west of County Kerry. This island is complete with 6th century buildings built by Christian monks. The legend of the man who would eclipse St. Patrick's popularity during the Middle Ages, and at the time be known as Brendan the Navigator, has no firm evidence of his accidental discovery of North America, but was widely proven to be quite the traveler. He founded the Second Order of the Irish Saints, or he was a member of it, I've seen both sources, and made his home in Clonfort, on the banks of the River Shannon in Ireland. As mentioned before, he founded many monasteries during his travels in Wales and Scotland and Brittany and the Faroe Islands. So, The part of his legend about traveling westward in search of more places in which to settle is not exactly without considerable merit. Brendan the Navigator, it said, set off when he was in his mid-80s, continuing to write about his travels. He returned after being blown off course by a storm, with a description of an unknown land that strikes eerily close to later Scandinavian descriptions of what they called Vinland, or present-day Newfoundland, in Canada. And for those questioning the feasibility of the technology needed to make such a trip across the treacherous, frigid North Atlantic, see, in 1976, a man named Tim Severin constructed a replica of the boat Brendan the Navigator would have used, and he landed in Canada all the same after following a similar path used by the Irish monk based on the ocean currents. This idea of being blown off course by a North Atlantic storm is a common one found in the stories of the Middle Ages, especially those in Viking sagas. And this attests to the dangers of the North Atlantic and might explain why more exploration wasn't done. Instead, these dangers and the vastness of this natural barrier translated into the idea that if you go there, you will fall off the edge of the world into what? No one really had an answer, but they were positive it wasn't good. This, along with tales of gigantic sea creatures that could sink a whole fleet of ships, persisted until Columbus officially proved the earth was round. Uh, Side note here, many non-Christians knew this for like a couple thousand years already. I know the ancient Greeks knew this. Then later, regarding the sea monsters came to regard them as merely undiscovered or unclassified whales and sharks and whatnot. See Herman Melville's Moby Dick, for instance. Besides St. Brendan's and Prince Maddox's tales, the one account that seems to hold the most weight of pre-Columbian European discovery of the Americas is by far the sagas of the Scandinavian Vikings. And thus, finally we've come full circle to what this episode was initially meant to do. Sometime in the early 900s, a Norwegian sailor named... I'm going try to try this pronunciation here. Gunbjorn Ulf Krakusen was blown off course by a storm, and he didn't recognize the lands that lay before him. It certainly wasn't his intended destination, which was Iceland, so Gunnbjorn becomes the first European to lay eyes on a North American slice of land. Islands, actually, just off Greenland's eastern coast. Around the time that Ethelred was finding his own version of sea legs as young king of England, in the late 970s and early 980s, a Norwegian ruffian named Erik Thorvaldsen was exiled from his home in Iceland for the crime of murder. And and by the way this apple didn't fall too far from the tree though as Eric's father Thorvald Asvaldson was also banished from Norway when Eric was young hence their home in Iceland and he struck out westward based on tales he heard growing up of Gunbjorn and his mysterious lands he discovered a rocky coast belonging to a mountainous glacier covered land he named Greenland technically if you ask any geologist on the planet they would readily tell you that Greenland is most definitely a part of the North American cluster of continental plates. In fact, one can come to, the, to that conclusion themselves without their geologist buddy if they remember that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that continues to push North America and Europe apart each minute, you know, this ridge cuts right up the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and is largely underwater except for that sliver of it that cuts right through Iceland giving that, that island its famous hot springs. You can literally see the opposite continent from each side, each side of that ridge that you're standing on. So, now, Greenland lies to the west of that ridge, therefore Greenland is not, geologically, a part of Europe. When Eric Thorvaldsen first set eyes upon Greenland, this man who had come to be called Eric the Red officially became the first European settler of the Americas. This in the year 982, just nine years before the Battle of Malden. But a clear distinction needs to be made here. Most do not consider Greenland to be a part of North America, understandably, because for the better part of the last, I don't know, thousand years, Scandinavians have held cultural and political sway over it. In fact, today, Greenland is owned by Denmark itself, and, and, and it's not a part of mainland North America. So there's, you know, a little wiggle room there for, for interpretation, I admit. Eric the Red sailed up both the eastern and western coasts of Greenland and even set up two settlements, one called, cleverly, I guess, the Eastern Settlement, and another, brilliantly, on the west side, called the Western Settlement. So there was also a much smaller settlement in the middle of these called, you know, the Middle Settlement. Okay, so it's safe to say that Eric the Red was many things, but a poet, he was not. Eric the Red's son, Leif Erikson, a highly respected man, in the year 999, eight years after the Battle of Malden, just so we're keeping track of other things that that we've already talked about on the show, Leif Erikson in 999 was blown off course And after a quick stopover in the Hebrides and fathering a son to the daughter of a local chieftain, he landed in his uh, intended destination of Norway. He quickly became herdsman, which is just a trusted member of the royal bodyguard of Norway. And he was able to befriend their king, Olaf I, a man we know on this podcast as Olaf Tryggvason, who, having converted to Christianity years earlier, over a friendly game of chess between the two men, converted Leif and commissioned Leif to Christianize Greenland. So that is what he did. While evangelizing across Norse settlements in the North Atlantic, Leif heard of fanciful tales of a successful Norse merchant who was blown off course on his way back home to Iceland from Norway, way back in 986 about those undiscovered islands, remarkably beyond Greenland. Recorded by the German monk, Adam of Bremen, almost a century later, when he was interviewing the king of Denmark, Swain Estrithson, he was talking about the story of Bjarni Hirholsen, accidental sighting of North America where, quote-unquote, unknown crops grew. Leif soon set out to see what these legends were all about. Or... He was blown off course by a storm. You know, at this point, it could go either way, right? It's said that Leif made three landings, and the last one he set up a small settlement at. The first is thought to be Baffin Island, which they called Heluland. The second, a little farther south on Canada's eastern shores, is said to be Labrador, which they called Markland. And the third, the Norseman named Vinland. And to be clear, no one is exactly sure where that exact landing site is, or was. There are numerous scholars and explorers and historians in on the debate, but due to a discovery decades ago in Lans Almedo, Vinland is thought to be present-day Newfoundland. After a, ver- after a short spell in Vinland, Leif Erikson returned to Greenland, where he stayed until his death in 1020. And if you'll grant just a quick break from the narrative here, it's it's worth, it's worth it to stop and ask what impact did Leif Erikson have on world history? Well, in terms of changing history, not much. His adventures certainly weren't forgotten, but it wasn't until two or three centuries later when his story became more widespread with the writing of Eric's Saga, which is the epic story about Eric the Red's life, and then in the Greenlander's Saga, which is... Arguably the more um, how should we say the more reliable account, I suppose? As for, as for us today, well it's pretty clear that Christopher Columbus quite simply was not the first European to step foot on North American shores, as we've said, especially with indisputable evidence that the Norse of the North Atlantic have left stone foundations of buildings as well as trinkets and, and other valuables around Lanzaal Newfoundland. In fact, To tie it more into the present, I guess modern anyway, the 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, from 1923 to 1929 is when he was president. See, he recognized Scandinavian immigrants and their descendants throughout Minnesota, publicly acknowledging the fact that Leif Erikson around the year 1000 was the first European to land on North American shores. Furthermore, the United States Congress and, and President Johnson officially named October 9th as Leif Erikson Day in nine se- or, excuse me 1974. Unfortunately, due in large part to various forces in 20th century American education, this was squashed in favor of October 12th, Columbus Day. Cultural baggage aside, isn't it just factually inaccurate to celebrate Columbus over Leif Erikson? I don't know. So back to reality here, back to the story. Leif Erikson in 1001 bounces around Canada's eastern coastline and he lands in what we mostly believe to be Newfoundland. Shortly after creating a small settlement, he leaves and he never returns, but the Norse exploration and the settling of North America did not stop. A man named Thorfinn Karlsefni like the vast majority of Scandinavians at the time, was a trader, a merchant. He sold goods, and he was known as a pretty honest businessman. In fact, his last name of Karlsefni has been translated into a lot of different phrases, but they all center around this idea of him being a complete man. While in Greenland for business, Thorfinn married the widow of Leif and Thorvald's brother, Thorstein. Her name was Gudrid, and she filled his head with tales of, these, of this strange new land full of pastures and timber and who knows what else, off to the west. Thorfinn saw an opportunity, as all entrepreneurs do. He needed a fleet of adventurers and warriors, and yes, even some women. By all accounts, Thorfinn meant to settle this new land, to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. So, to give the expedition a little celebrity, I wonder, Thorfinn recruited another son of Erik the Red, brother of Leif, named Thorvald. In addition to Thorvald, Thorfinn, the businessman, also accepts, also accepts Leif and Thorvald's sister, the legendary Freydis. So, again, as all Norse history goes, not much is known until they're actually settled in, Vic- in Vinland. lot of holes in all these stories. But Leif Erikson, still in Greenland, agrees to allow Thorfinn to use his settlement, presumably Lanzo Meadow. They will be there for three years, which will be the longest continuous period of Scandinavian settlement on the North American continent to ever exist, as far as we know so far. Things seem to be going pretty well for a while, and Thorfinn and his wife Gudrid give birth to the first recorded European child in the Western Hemisphere. This child's name was Snorri. Okay, I i mean, I admit, not a great name for someone that important, but if it's any consolation, Snorri was a fairly popular name amongst Scandinavians at the time. So, yeah, Snorri Karlsefni, the first European child born in North America. There you go. Unfortunately, the natives in the area became bolder as time went on. At first, see, these Greenlanders would would see telltale signs of these strange new people they dubbed Skralings, meaning barbarians. Then they would see them in larger numbers on the horizon, or, or in the trees at a distance. They were even seen in small canoes on the waterways in the area. However, something drastic occurred, because the next thing we know is Thorvald, In what became known as the Battle of Vinland in 1010, Thorvald was killed, and the natives raided Thorfinn's settlement. In the ensuing chaos, Freitas, who was already a feared rabble-rouser and a fierce Viking woman, would make her place in history. According to the Greenlander saga, which, as far as sagas go, like I said before, is more or less our kind of go-to source for the Vinland account, even though it was written a couple centuries later... The natives attacked, under the cover of night. The Greenlander's saga reads this, quote, Why run you away from such worthless creatures, stout men that ye are, when, as seems to me likely, you might slaughter them like so many cattle? Give me a weapon. I know I could fight better than any of you. That was Freydis talking. All right, and, and, and Freitas picks up a sword of one of the murdered Norsemen on the ground, and I should point out here that <laughs> Freitas is pregnant, right? She rips her shirt, scr- like totally off, screams an inhuman scream at her attackers, and repeatedly slams the broadside of the sword against her bare chest. This succeeds in scaring away the natives who, it seems, couldn't get away fast enough. Like I said, legend. Alright? So, shortly after this incident, to our current knowledge, this was the last chapter in the Scandinavian exploration and settling of North America. The Norse would remain in Greenland for another couple centuries. But they would, for a long spell, abandon even there. But why would they leave even Greenland, though? Archaeologists rule out, you know, any sort of starvation or dietary concerns. But see the Vikings took advantage of planetary changes they had no real scientific grasp of. During the 10th and the 14th centuries, there was a period of global warming that allowed the the treacherous icy seas to be traversed much easier, and parts of otherwise frozen solid lands in the North Atlantic were greened up a little bit, you could say. These explorers settled in places like, like the Orkneys, the Faroe Islands, Iceland, Greenland, and and present-day Canada, precisely because of what's called the medieval warming period. But by the 1300s, this spike in global temperatures began to dissipate and and start to return to 9th century levels pretty slowly. Keep in mind that global climate change is historically a very slow process, so there was no Roland Emmerich film of overnight catastrophe that forced a sudden abandonment of these places. The Vikings are the hardiest of people, one could say, and, and they adapted. Though agriculture was, was non-existent, at least in terms of large-scale population needs, on Greenland, the Vikings, by the end of their 500-year stay, was marked by a, a shift shift from their original dietary choices of farmed crops and livestock to a more sea-based diet of fish and, and largely seals, they were slowly becoming more Inuit than Viking. As for leaving because of any native threat, yes, due in large part to natives' attacks, Vinland was abandoned. But as for Greenland, it's not really the case. I mean, they had disagreements and, and sparse run-ins with the local Inuit, but they largely stayed away from one another. To me, it really was a matter of expediency. Like like Thorfinn, the majority of Scandinavians were not Vikings per se in terms of the violent, brutish raider. All right, They were farmers and they were traders and, and members of... Fairly sedentary communities like those we find in Greenland, and Iceland, and Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Normandy. Though they all benefited in some way from their fellow Norsemen's raids, they mostly did not partake in that lifestyle really at all. When it came to bringing new settlers to Iceland, it was simple. It's a breathtaking island of unmatched beauty, located in, a, in an ideal halfway point across the sea to those strange new lands, while still being close enough to keep their cultural identity as Norse. Fun fact, by the way, Old Norse is so similar to Icelandic today that Icelandic schoolchildren can read some of the old sagas in in their original text. That's how close the languages are. But as for Greenland, a lack of plowable fields and, and pastures for the livestock further removed them from their traditional Norse ways, not to mention the increasing difficulty of attracting more people to move out there, let alone do business with them. So what can we ultimately say about the Scandinavian push westward during the 500-year medieval warming period across a, a vast and treacherous ocean? In my opinion, it was a time to see yet another example of the intrepid nature of these fiercely independent people. The people were unapologetically brutal, and yet still harbored many of the same peaceful intentions of any people wishing to move into unknown lands to start a new life and expand the reach of their beloved culture. It didn't work out. I mean, really, that's all that can be said about this westward expansion. It didn't work out. Like so many people in history who made bold moves, their attempt came, and their attempt went. But the Norse were certainly not finished with the Middle Ages quite yet. Before ending the show, I really want to go back and I want to do a quick survey of the Norse before we move on. Some of this will be information that we've covered, and some of this will not be information that we covered as it took place before the Battle of Malden. So just a few bullet points here. The Scandinavian people were settling northern Europe for millennia prior to 793 when their warriors attacked a beloved monastery in northern England called Lindisfarne. This would officially kick off, for historians anyway, what's called the Viking Age. Next, Danish Vikings would hold sway, more or less, for the next century on the English island and and set up settlements all over, until King Alfred the Great would push back so hard on these Danish Vikings that he, in the year 886, or thereabout, unified the kingdoms of Wessex, Mercia, East Anglia, and Northumbria under one national name, England. Meanwhile, a Scandinavian leader and contemporary of King Alfred, named Rollo, would settle mainland West Francia, extort the king of West Francia, and carve out a French duchy called Normandy in the year 911. See, in the east around this time, Norsemen from present-day Sweden pushed east and began mixing with the Slavic people of east-central Europe and set up kingdoms such as Novgorod. These people would come to be called the Rus, or what we call today the Russians, And back in England, Alfred's kingdom would hold up for another century with several Danish attempts at reclaiming England under Danelaw until King Æthelred the Unready, who we already know, would be overwhelmed by the Danes under Swain Forkbeard. This, the starting point for this podcast. And finally, during this time, this whole time, the medieval warming period kicked into high gear and the Norse, like like Eric the Red and his children, along with Thorfinn Karlsefni, see they would attempt to establish a lasting impact on Scandinavian history, only to achieve partial success in the region as a whole. Now, one could narrate the late Middle Ages in many ways, but I've chosen to focus on the fundamental top-down change in England by the Danes to to start our podcast. Some might feel like they're ready to move on already. I mean, there's a whole continent of goings-on that need to be explored. So why so much time on the English and the Vikings, right? Well, I feel it's all, it's all prelude. What emerges from the ashes of Alfred's England and Canute's North Sea Empire, which we haven't had a chance to see yet, is what catapulted Europe into the next phase of its evolution toward what we see today. We're going to return to England, and we will explore the fate of the Saxon-held England before following its ripples outward, expanding our our view to cover larger and larger swaths of political intrigue and and stories, and, and here it is, yes, a major movement toward this idea of globalization, which the Vikings are directly responsible for. So I hope you enjoyed our little foray westward with the Vikings today. Thank you all for downloading and listening. I'm determined to grow this show, so I ask that you share this show with those you know. I'm excited to admit that we now have listeners across the United States, as well as Switzerland, Ireland, and the United Kingdom. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app or site. And we're also on Facebook, search for fortunes wheel podcast and twitter at wheel podcast and instagram this is all lowercase here folks at fortune underscore wheel underscore podcast you can also email the show at all lowercase letters here fortunes wheel podcast at gmail.com i encourage questions i encourage book recommendations I highly encourage differing perspectives, and I even encourage suggestions for topics covered. Again, thank you for your support. Now, we sail back eastward on the next episode, but not quite to England yet. There's a quick stopover on the Emerald Isle that must be established. See, the Danes were everywhere, as, as we've clearly seen, and Ireland Ireland was no different. Ireland was was scattered with kingdoms of all sizes and influences, but the Vikings during the late 10th century and the early 11th century, the Vikings held quite the dominion there. Until a local legend, an Irish national hero, emerges, named Brian Boru, the first high king of an independent Ireland. I can't wait to tell you about it.